1: Now we're here to learn from you. So we pray, teach us in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter five, verse one, where we read, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Okay, now, chapter four, finish, you may remember, with this verse in chapter four, the last verse in chapter four, verse 25, which explained to us that there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. So these are the people, they heard the message of hope that he gave and they heard that there's a chance for them to go to heaven, and they don't turn away from him. They just keep following him. They've been healed. We learned that from the verse before that, where there were many that came with all sorts of diseases and was categorized there. They were healed, and they don't wanna turn away, so they follow him also. Now, we were told that they came from everywhere. They came from uh, the, his hometown area of uh, Galilee, of Nazareth. They came from all the way from south, from Jerusalem. They came from the region of the Gentiles over on the other side of the Jordan. And they're just, they came from all over Judea, the Jewish areas, they all came. And his word had just spread all throughout all these areas and they were now following him. And what's important to keep in mind, always realize that even though we have these chapter breaks within the book, that those were added. So it's a continuum. So as we go now from this state where they're all following him, and then it says, in the verse, verse one, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. So what is happening here is that they're all following him, and it's like he, he looks behind him, and he sees this all this big group that's coming him, and then it has this word, seeing. And so you know, it draws us to wonder, when he says, seeing here, what was he thinking? So he's seeing, but what was he thinking? And it doesn't just mean he turned around and, and he saw all those people there, and he says, Oh, that's a lot of people that are following me. I wonder how many there are. So then someone do a count. Doesn't do that. But actually, what we do have from one of the other gospels is that we know what he was thinking when he turned around and saw all the multitudes, because it says in Mark 6:34, Mark 6.34, then Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So we find here in this Mark six thirty four passage is a typical threefold pattern with the Lord where there are three things that happen. First, he sees the multitude. Second, he's moved with compassion. And third, he acts, he does something. So he sees the multitude here and we're told in this verse in Mark six thirty four that he sees the multitude and he sees them as sheep not having a shepherd. They had no shepherd. Sheep that had no direction because they had no shepherd directing them. Sheep because they had no spiritual food because they had no shepherd feeding them. Sheep that had no protection because they had no shepherd protecting them. And so he sees the people in this state, no direction, no food, no protection, all because they had no shepherd, and it moves him. It moves him to compassion, and that's what it says in that verse in Mark six thirty-four: that he was moved with compassion toward them. And so when it says he was moved with compassion toward them, it meant that he felt their lostness and their frustration because they didn't know where to go. They didn't know where to go in life. They had no shepherd to guide them. His compassion melted, he felt this deep void, this emptiness in their soul, in their gut, so to speak, from the hunger and the thirst because they weren't fed. They weren't fed, they were, oh, they were fed all right, they were fed, you know, here's a whole lot of traditions you need to keep, that's about as filling as walking through a lumber yard and kicking up the dust and breathing that for food. I mean, he felt this compassion because he felt this fear and this anxiety they had, because he felt how they felt so exposed, because they had no shepherd to protect them. What's gonna happen to me in the next step? And if that does happen, what will happen after that? And so this drove the Lord then to teach them, and he's got a teaching that's gonna guide their lives, he's got a teaching that's gonna feed their souls, he's got a teaching that's going to protect, end up being protecting their hearts. And so they had no shepherd, He steps in as their shepherd. Actually, they had shepherds, they had shepherds, the shepherds, but previously he, as Jehovah Jesus in the Old Testament, he spoke about those shepherds when he said in Jeremiah 50, verse six, Jeremiah 50, verse six, he he said, my people hath been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to mountain. They have forgotten their resting place. Why did all that happen to them? Their shepherds, their shepherds were the blame, and the Lord was not happy with the rabbis. The Lord was not happy with the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the shepherds. So He pronounced very severe judgments on them in Ezekiel thirty-four two. Ezekiel thirty-four two, when He said, "Son of man, prophesy against." the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. So this is a terrible pronouncement. I actually tell this to my rabbi friends. I'm not very popular, but I tell them, I said, look, you know, you have a tremendous responsibility before God and God's not going to just let you off in terms of how you should be leading your people to the resting place from the one who said, come unto me and I will give you rest, the Lord Jesus. So they had shepherds. The shepherds made the people lost. The shepherds made the people go away from God as their resting place. And the shepherds that the people had, they were the rabbis. They're the ones who misled the people instead of giving the people God, who is what they need. The rabbis gave the people traditions. And cause the people to be lost, lost in an impossible goal or job or an impossible to-do list with 613 on the to-do list. And the burden that they place on this people, instead of leading the people to the Lord, who's the fountain of living waters, to the resting place, they lead them to the burden place, to the workplace with 613 laws. Reminds me of a, of, a, of an Israeli woman and her sister who after years that recently had received the Lord, and the one is living here in the the U.S. and the other is living in Israel, and they talk on the phone with each other, and their, their theme is, the rabbis have lied to us. That's what they say, the rabbis have lied to us. Well, in this case, the Lord saw the multitudes, he feels their pain not having a shepherd, and he teaches them. Now, there was another time, same thing happened, but it wasn't in this particular... Okay, it was in Mark 14, 14, Mark 14, 14, where it says Jesus saw, went forth and saw a multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. So here he feels the pain of their sicknesses. He feels the pain that of their sufferings and his compassion drives them to heal their sicknesses. In another case, the need of the people where his compassion rose up again was in Matthew 15, 32, Matthew 15, 32, where it says, then Jesus called the disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. So he has compassion on them. They're hungry. He has compassion on that. They're gonna faint. He has compassion on that. So he makes food. So in all these cases, the Lord looks on the multitudes, he feels their need, and then he goes and moves them into action. And that's what should activate us, that when we take the time to listen to others, let the Lord cause us the feeling of being lost and let the Lord activate us to action. And so he's seen the multitude, he goes up into a mountain. Now this starts, obviously, this section, this is the, the sermon on the mount. It's gonna last for three chapters. It's gonna go from this chapter all the way to the end of chapter seven. And without thinking, we always refer to this teaching as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a Sermon on the Mount, and we kind of don't. But think about that for a minute. What a strange place to give a sermon. You know, what a strange place for the Lord to give a sermon on a mountainside. I mean, it's such a contrast with where the, the scribes and the Pharisees were giving their sermons which is what the Lord referred to in Matthew 23, 2. Matthew 23, 2, when he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So there they were. There were the scribes, there were the Pharisees, there were the rabbis. They were sitting in Moses' seat and they were teaching the people. And there's the Lord, by contrast, he's sitting on the side of a mountain and he's teaching the people. I mean, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have their temple in Jerusalem, they have their synagogues spread throughout all Israel, but there's no synagogue for the Lord to teach in. And he's not really welcome at the temple. He didn't walk into the temple and they said, Oh, it's Rabbi Jesus. So take this prominent Bima here and, and bring your message. That didn't happen. It was one time he was given a scroll when he was in a synagogue. But apart from that, people didn't say, we have a guest lecturer today. It's Rabbi Jesus. He's going to give us a talk here. And no. So he has to give a talk on the side of a mountain. And kind of in this vein, he speaks about the, his, not only the lack of, of having a, a synagogue to speak in, but he speaks about his whole lack of not having a home. He doesn't have a home. He says that in, in Matthew 8:20, Matthew 8:20, Jesus saith unto him, "The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He doesn't have a home to lay his head down." So he's driven into the deserts, he's driven to the mountains, and, the, and there the Lord teaches. It's not such a bad place to teach. I mean, after all, the law was given from a mountain. That was Mount Sinai. And and so now in the Sermon on the Mount, he's gonna give the explanation of the law and he's on the side of a mountain. But there's a difference because the mountain that the law was given on was also had attached to it a very great warning, a big warning. And the warning was don't go one step further. Don't approach this mountain don't even touch this mountain, you'll be killed. In Exodus nineteen twelve, Exodus nineteen twelve, thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about saying, take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mountain or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. But now the people are encouraged to come. Come to this mountain because the other mountain, Mount Sinai, where the law was given, that was the law that Moses gave that condemned the people and they're told, stay back. But now the people are encouraged to come, to approach, come because now he's not gonna give them the law that condemns them. He's gonna give them grace and truth, which is what is said in John one seventeen. John 1.17, the, Lord, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So he starts out in the Sermon on the Mount, and when we see him here as in the Sermon on the Mount, he's fulfilling a great role Remember now, the Lord has three roles. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. So here, he's the prophet. He will be the great high priest. He is the great high priest. A priest represents man to God. A priest speaks for man to God. And when the Lord Jesus speaks for us to God, he's speaking at a priest as a priest. He's not just any priest. He's a priest that's, as we mentioned, he's feeling our our weaknesses As it says in Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, of our weaknesses, but was in all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So he is a priest, he's a king, he's a king. What does a king do? A king is a leader. A king leads his people. A king is right out there in front of his people like David the king. He was out there fighting the battles. He He was right there at the head of leading the people. Moses was a king. He led the people out of Egypt. The Lord is a king. And it says in Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 2.10, it speaks about him as a king. It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory. He's bringing them to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. As our king, he's a captain. He's bringing us to glory. We We see him bringing us to glory when we look at him on the cross. What a strange place for the king to be but Pilate got it right in John 19, 19. John 19, 19, when it says Pilate wrote a title and put it on his cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, that was right. And there he is as a king on the cross, and so what does he do? A king on the cross, he turns to the thief next to him, and he says to him in Luke twenty three forty three. Luke 23, 43, Jesus said unto him, "'Verily I say unto thee, "'Today shalt thou be with me in paradise.'" He's a king, he's on the cross. He's bringing someone, following him to paradise. But here on the Sermon on the Mount, he's the great prophet. And Moses, at the end of his life, when he was winding down, so to speak, he's led Israel, as we mentioned, as a king out of Egypt. He's he's been the priest. He stood in the gap when God was gonna destroy them and said, Lord, don't destroy them. That's a priest. And yet he's been the great prophet. He's taught them. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, our rabbi. He's been the great prophet, and maybe this is one of his greatest roles. Of course, he he writes the first five books of Moses. He writes the Torah, he writes the Torah, he writes it. But then he says in Deuteronomy 18.15, Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord thy God shall raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren, like unto me, Unto him you shall hearken. So he tells the people, look, right out of the dead center of you is going to come this great prophet. This great prophet, as the Lord Jesus did, came right out. And it says that you looked at Israel at that time, and you say, well, it wasn't a people that was following God. It was really fertile ground for a prophet to come out of. But that's what it says in Isaiah 53, 2. Isaiah 53, two, that he will grow up before him as a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground. So he rises up out of the Jewish people and Moses says, watch for him. Be on the lookout for him because he's gonna teach you just like I taught you. And then he warns the people. He says, listen, he says, in essence, Moses was saying, look, there was plenty of times when you, let me, you didn't listen to me, but I gotta warn you, you better listen to him. Unto him shall ye hearken. He warns the people, it's very dangerous for you if you don't listen to this great prophet. Why? Because in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 28, Hebrews 10, 28, it says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing. So finally here, the great prophet has come and he's on the side of a mountain and he's teaching them. And having climbed up to this side of this mountain, it says in verse one here, and when he was set. So he climbs up there and he sits down. He sits down. It's kind of unusual. You would expect that a person who's gonna teach would be standing like I am. But he doesn't. He sits down. He sits down and as he does he begins now to just take apart the false teaching of the world, the false teaching of the rabbis and the scribes. And he's gonna say things like, you know, you've heard, forget about it. I say unto you. And he's gonna do this teaching on the side of a mountain as he's sitting down. You know, you you see him there in this scene. He's sitting there, he's sitting down, and you can't help but think of when the Lord said he was gonna sit down in Malachi 3.3. Malachi 3.3, in a future role, it says about the Lord, he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. It's Malachi 3.3. It's one of the last verses before the whole Old Testament stops. It ends. Book of Malachi. It's only got one more chapter after that. Well, there's gonna come a day when the Lord is gonna sit down, he's gonna purify like silver and he's gonna put all his silver in this cauldron and then he's gonna fire it up and it's gonna get hotter and hotter and that's coming. Probably not very far off. You know, there's this um, Representative Omar or whatever, the Somali in Congress who's now making all these comments. She's testing the water. Can this country really, uh, not just stomach, but move in the way of anti-Semitism? And so, you know, first there's the big, you know, oh, no, terrible. Uh, But then after a while, it's going to be maybe, maybe. What's that going to do? Same thing is done in France. It's going to cause the Jewish people to go into the pot. Go into the pot of Israel. Go move back to Israel. That's why I bought a house in Israel. It's going to increase in value. I know that. (laughs) Uh, But um, so the refiner is putting the silver into the pot. And then he's going to sit there. He's going to turn up the heat on Israel. He's going to bring all the nations to come up and fight against Jerusalem. It's going to get very hot. That's why I'm not going. I'm going down to Loretto, Mexico. <laughs> no, because there's going to be a Holocaust coming that's twice as hot as the one in Nazi Germany where Hitler was successful in killing one-third of the Jewish people, this one is described in Zechariah as killing two-thirds of the Jewish people in what will be a great purging. So from his seated position, the Lord, he's purging. He's purging, and, and this is gonna happen in the future until all the dross has been taken out. Then he's gonna arise, get up from his sitting place, and destroy all those nations that he brought against Jerusalem. And then it says, the sons of Levi will be purified so that they can offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, which means the sons of Levi are gonna offer for themselves and they're gonna lead the people to make an offering that's described in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53.10 when it says, then it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. You shall see his seed to prolong his days. And it says, he shall see the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many? You make his soul an offering for sin. You make the soul of the righteous servant an offering for sin. Then shall the Levites offer an offering in righteousness. They're going to offer for their souls the righteous soul of the Lord Jesus Christ as their offering. That's what's going to happen. That's the offering in righteousness. It's not their righteousness. It's the righteous servant. And that's what's gonna happen. Now, we're told here, his disciples, in verse one, his disciples came unto him. All right, now, there's two possible explanations. And, I mean, um, you know, we look at the paintings of this scene of the Sermon on the Mount, and they show the Lord before a great group of people on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching. Them. That's possible. It's possible. It's possible that when it says his disciples came to him, verse one, it's possible that they just took the front seats. You know, they just had a bunch of seats up there that says reserved for disciples, you know. (laughs) So they they just took those seats. Maybe that's, it's possible, it's possible. They were the closest to the Lord. But there's another possibility. There's another possibility. And that is that the Sermon on the Mount was only to his disciples, possibly, who he trained so that they should carry down to the people, and which is the pattern that the Lord gave in, in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, when he told his disciples, You go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe also all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you unto the end of the earth. So in other words, he was saying, Look, everything that I taught you, you now teach, you teach. I don't know. I'm not sure. It might have been one of the two cases, but, you know, it it doesn't matter. But, But either way, it's clear that the disciples occupied this closer ring, this closer circle around the Lord as he taught here on the Sermon on the Mount.
0: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God.